you know, just kind of take it day by day. And I, that's my advice for any travel. I feel like over the years, I've kind of had to learn, see where things go, be open, mm-hmm. like have some goals or things that you want to do, but don't like be too strict on everything that you have to accomplish um, in that span of time. And yeah, just follow your heart, do what you're drawn to. Like I said, I was supposed, ideally for my program, I would have been in Latin America and you know, that probably would have been great too. But I think my experience in Ghana really changed my life. It changed like how I you know, view traveling in Africa. I traveled to six more African countries after that. I still want to go back. And mm-hmm. I don't know, it just made me who I am really. So I think if you have a desire to do it and something's calling you to do it, just follow through on that. And yeah, you'll always benefit from it. He gave me his card, and it said he graduated from Kyoto Sekai University. I was like, oh, oh my God, my that's my goodness. dream university. I've always wanted to go there. That's yes. amazing. Yeah, this is complete happenstance. This is right. complete. I just happened to go to this event. Because I had my artwork, somebody told me, go downstairs to the secret event. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid, so I go down there. I show my work, and that's how this was able to happen. So it's not complete luck. Like, you got to talk to people. You never know what can happen. The next day, he sent me a Facebook message. Yo, I just talked to my professor. Uh, are you free on Monday? Like, hell yeah, I'm free on Monday. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's a dream so, come true. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I go to visit my dream school that I've been looking at for like two or three years. And yeah. like, I've been on their website so many times. They have like famous mangaka that guest, like guest teach here. This is the only university in the world that has graduate degrees in my field. Right. Um, so I meet this professor. The main thing is just creating better experiences for people. There are many people who do study abroad, but there's not that many people who do it well. And there's not that many people who do it well and, and cater towards, you know, the African-American experience. When African-Americans go to Africa, there's different things that they want to do. All right. There's a different experience. I'm trying to make those connections. It's not the, you know, let's go over there and help the poor African people. Oh, I mean, we may do right. some, you know, we may do some community service, but it's not like, you know, we're not going over there to save Africa. Whereas a lot of these other uh, uh, organizations, that's kind of like what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to create more of partnerships, more relationship based um, activities. So people see, you know, when they go to Africa, they see, OK, these are our brothers and sisters. These are possible potential business partners. These are possible potential people we could, you know, end up going to school with. You know, we kind of want to cast the African continent in a different light yeah. and what could be done there in a different light. And that, that's why we chose to form things and, and do it the way we do. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I would love to just because I think I have probably learned more um, working and living and studying overseas than I have anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I've also kind of come to realize I, I didn't know this until, again, I got introduced to that TCK third culture kid concept mm-hmm. that that's kind of seems to be one of the legacies of having had that kind of childhood. A lot of us, when you're adults, feel like you always need to be somewhere else and it doesn't really <laughs> feel normal to be in one place for, for a long time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, we, a lot of people kind of talk about this, about how you need, you, you sometimes find ways to scratch those itchy feet in different ways mm-hmm. um, and kind of like, you know, find that um, something to indulge that urge to explore and see new places and new things in, in different ways. Mm-hmm. So that that's what I work on now. Yeah. <laughs> that's when I would say I learned, according to a, a family friend who kind of put it that way and mm-hmm. stuck with me, that I capture the essence of humanity. 
So I mm. tend to just kind of kept that with me. I realized you're right. That's what I do. I love portraits the most. So for example, whenever it was lunchtime, um, and the kids knew that they didn't have to be so professional on a quarter, whenever they were just being themselves, I, that's the perfect, the best photo, my favorite photos. Mm-hmm. Um, so moments like that of just capturing kids being kids. So I started in Ghana and then I, you know, took my camera also back with me in Gambia. And then while we were in the Gambia, we got to go spend, I think, five days in Senegal. So I um, took my camera there too, of course, and then South Africa. So, but I just feel like there was such a theme. It was just such a wholesome experience to know, you know, my host family, like, really enjoy spending time with me and so that was that was one um another one is so i guess one reason that my host family was excited to be matched with me is Mm -hmm. my heritage i'm I'm indian and i guess this younger girl is somehow really interested in indian culture i don't know how that happened but (laughs) she Mm -hmm. was like really excited about learning more and learning about stuff and so one day I went to this Arabic store and bought like a henna cone. Are you, are you familiar with henna? Yes. Yeah. And so I, I went and bought a henna cone and I came home and I did henna for the girls and their friends who were over. And they were so amazed. They were like, this is the coolest thing ever. So that was like a really fun merging of cultures experience that I had. And so we knew that that was a process that was happening, and we were also interested in the concept of movement within the diaspora and around the diaspora. Yeah. So I was able to ask people, you know, where were your grandparents born? And, um, and that's a casual conversation that people can usually talk about pretty easily. Yeah. But it gives me some clues about, you know, the social history of African-descended people on the island. Mm. Like, I spoke with one cab driver whose parents were from... Um, I think St. Thomas or his grandparents might have been, it's, uh, it was a little while ago, so I don't remember, but I asked them, you know, when they moved to Trinidad and he said it was around the 1940s or fifties. And based on my pre-research, I knew that there was, uh, an oil boom in Trinidad at the time. So mm. people were moving to Trinidad from other parts of the Caribbean. Mm-hmm. And so I was able to kind of contextualize this man's life story or his, his history his personal history within the broader history and that's kind of what we were hoping to understand obviously this is not this is not necessarily true today but at the time you know as a black person from the south like i was used to like racism all the time like Mm. you know microaggressions all these other types of things and even at duke like you know there were not that many black kids at duke either so i was just very used to being treated in a way that wasn't always great right Mm-hmm. Um, in the UK was for the first time, I think because there was so much diversity and people just weren't stressed out about me being black. So it also just gave me this new idea that like, it could be better, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, you like maybe, you know, racism, anti-black sentiment, like maybe like there is a hope out there, right? Because this country and the way I'm being treated, I just feel so drastically different than I've ever felt before. It has made me feel like I could do anything, right? You know, like the cultural norm in my country, they are the thing that's trying to hold me back. But maybe I can decide that I'm not going to allow that to happen anymore. I can understand sometimes because it's funny. I'll watch 90 Day Fiance sometimes and I'm like, that's not what she's saying. (laughs) (laughs) At all. (laughs) So there's times like that or... um, 
it's funny. I remember thinking my mom never wasn't always very affectionate or um, would tell me I was beautiful a lot because my mom's gorgeous and I just had like really low self-esteem about my looks and so on. And so mm-hmm. I just thought she reinforced that, not realizing is because she was saying a lot of it in Turkish. And since I had stopped speaking in Turkish, I didn't really You didn't know. But it meant beautiful girl, she would say to me all the time, or oh, my wow. um, beautiful um, rose and stuff. Like she would say stuff. If you're insecure, you'll remember the bad stuff more than the good. And so mm-hmm. that was where I was. But then contacts entered my life and I didn't feel like <laughs> And I was like, oh, hey, she was saying it a lot. <laughs> I mean, it's just cornmeal's dense, dense, dense. Mm-hmm. And that was like the basis of every meal. And I was so over it. <laughs> I mean, they make great like meat sauces to dip it in or like, I guess kind of like, kind of like a... African version of collard greens, I guess. We ate that kind of often, too. But I was okay. just so over that Ugali mix. I was like, this is just not it. Like, there's nothing to it. But yeah. then once I left, I was like, man, I would, you know what I would do for some Ugali right now? Like, <laughs> but I was so over it when it was just served in front of me all the time. That's funny how that happens. I mean, it was a temporary trip. You adjust. Right. That diet does something to you, though. You know, in the bathroom, though. Let's oh. It was an adjustment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm telling you, those first days we were all like stomachs gargling like that. That was that was an adjustment. Yeah, <laughs> a little while. <laughs> gotta be real. You gotta share the whole experience. Right. That's true. That's true. My first assignment was Lagos, Nigeria, mm-hmm. and it you know kind of has this, I would say, stigma of being like not a desirable place to go. I never understood that because, I mean, I had an amazing time while I was there and I loved it and I think Nigeria is a beautiful country. But yeah, it was sort of like you could see people looking at me during this like reveal day where everybody kind of figures out their assignments and they were like, oh, are you going to be okay? And I was like, yeah. I'm so excited, you know? It's like I I put this high on my list because I thought it was going to be really, really cool. And so, um, yeah, I've always kind of had this fearless mentality. I think you just, you have to, because if you think about it too much, I think you're just going to be in your head and and talk yourself out of it, right? Going to be great. And it was great. And really, to be honest, I think anybody who feels that way has never been there, right? Yeah. Girl, this is the the best part of it is that I I okay, so I, my answer to this is I usually tell people I manifest them like they actually find me and that's the craziest thing. Just like how I was in my internship um, messing around on the computer, like they it just finds me. So wow. part of that manifestation is uh, people. So I'll be on Twitter talking about Tiger King and someone will DM me. <laughs> I'm on Twitter talking about Tiger King and how Carol did it. And someone will DM me and say, oh, my God, you're talking about Tiger King, Tiger, Tiger Scholarship. I forgot I wanted to send this to you. I think your followers will like it. And it's like an internship to work with tigers in Malaysia is completely paid for. And I'm like, that's random. Okay, thanks. So I'll share that. And um... I was carrying so many things in my hand Mm. and I decided that I was going to carry the bags on my hip 
Hmm. <laughs> Nobody in Ghana carries things on their head. <laughs> they carry them on their head. And so, oh, you know, but I just was not feeling confident to carry my groceries on my head. I was like, I don't, I'm, I haven't done this. Mm-hmm. You know, this is not something I grew up with. I'm not going to even attempt it. And so I went up to these guys to, to hail a taxi back home. And I started speaking and I greeted them in tree. But then when I got in, he was, he admitted that he knew that I, either I wasn't from there or either I was, you know, I had Ghanaian parents and I was returning or something mm. because of the way that I carried the groceries, the groceries <laughs> on my hip versus on my head. So yes, you know, in those ways and instances, I definitely stuck out. Mm-hmm. The flight was so long. I went from New York to LA, LA to Sydney. Then I stopped over in Cannes for a little, uh, can't, I forgot how to pronounce Cairns, Cairns, whatever, somewhere north. And then I got to Perth and my aunt has this like weird Jamaican Australian accent. Her husband's Scottish. So he has like this weird Scottish Australian accent. And my cousins have like the thickest Australian accent. <laughs> so I didn't understand what anybody was saying. <laughs> and I was just like, what am I doing here? I feel like I haven't slept in a week. And like oh, no. these people are speaking to me in allegedly, allegedly they're speaking to me in English. Allegedly. And I don't understand <laughs> what they're saying. But then I think I didn't feel as much homesickness because my aunt was there. Mm-hmm. So I would go whenever I felt like I needed a family situation, I need to be in a house with like a real kitchen, and you know, I would go to their place and my aunt also cooked Jamaican food. So, you know, anytime, anytime I felt yeah, any type of homesickness, I would just go there. So I didn't really experience it that much. I think for me, you know, as a, a globe trotter at heart, like I love travel, I love living abroad. It was definitely an easier transition, I think, because like I said, I've had so much life experience. Mm-hmm compared to someone like in their 20s, you know, still in college. But I think back on it, I'm like, I think part of me that was like, shake, it was a mission that I almost had. It was like, Nicole, you traveled and went to all these different places, but you never had that opportunity to study abroad when you were an undergrad. So now thinking back on it, I'm just like, yeah, I'm glad that I was able to like, you know, have that life experience checked off my list. But I think it's more not necessarily an age thing, but just a mentality yeah. thing. Like I was saying before about being flexible, like you can be in, you know, my, you know, in your mid thirties, early thirties when I you know, when was in Germany, but it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're not flexible, you're, it's not going to be for you. So I think, yeah. I think it's more about just like personality wise, adaptability mm-hmm. more than anything. Like I'm going to have everything so laid out so that I can go and pitch this to them. Even though I was, 25 years old at the time I still wanted to like make sure that they were supportive of it and that they thought it was a good idea because my parents like they their opinions do matter a lot to me and I do like to consult them even though sometimes I will go and do my own thing I made a full list of bullet points about why I wanted to go to London and why it was going to be a good idea for me and I went to my mom first I still remember it and she was just like go for it. And I was, I was so surprised. I was really (laughs) so surprised because my mother didn't even want me to go to Hampton initially. She really wanted me to stay in state, but I think she just knew that, that I knew what I was talking about and I had done the research and things like that. And my father was supportive as well. So knowing that they're proud of me and just happy for me, it it means the world. It helps me while I'm out here so far away. In Brazil, they broke us out into groups, and then they had a volunteer, uh, an English-speaking volunteer, 
take a group of six, seven of us, and they would drop us off in the middle of a random part of the city. Mm. And they're like, figure out a way to come back. It was like, again, a human connective experience, right? Where you were like learning how to read a map. You were learning how to use a public transportation system. You had to talk to people and use your gestures. And it's like, wow, like if I can find my way home from like from two hours away, which it did take two hours for us to get back uh, <laughs> without speaking the language, without Google Translate, I can survive, I think pretty much survive anywhere. And it gave me a lot of confidence mm. uh, in my future travels. Yeah. And those are the types of immersive experiences that I think train you to solve problems and real life problems in a very human based way. Larry was just, just, you know, we need to we need to know each other because we're black. That's just how he felt. And yeah. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> you know, I came across so many well-educated, high-up-level brothers, and it was just nothing but love. It was just easy to create a community, create a circle. Also, you know, the head nod is universal. I think mm-hmm. I, I talked about this in my video, but every time I would see a brother on the street, I'll be hanging with my international friends. They'd be like, oh, man, that's so cool. I just wish I could do that. I was like, oh, man, don't you ever do that to no brother. <laughs> <laughs> don't you ever, don't you ever nod your head to another brother, man. Don't you ever. <laughs> like, I just wish I could do that. Because it's, it's a, it is a universal thing across the whole world. It is, you know, when I was in, even when I was in the UK, it was very common as well. So, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. And that professor, he just like no holds bar talked about the good and the bad of Japanese like culture, like <laughs> mm-hmm. um, talking about even like women, like how sexism is like, very prevalent in Japan. Mm. And I mean, I learned about what they call like Christmas cake, where oh it's, no, where, like women who are over. <laughs> Christmas is like women who are over 25 are considered to be Christmas cake because nobody wants Christmas cake after Christmas is over. Um, So that was the first time I started learning like little nuances like that. It was so fascinating. (laughs) But definitely when you took that class, if you had the rose colored glasses, when you went there, they've got like shattered and ripped (laughs) off your face because he just told us all kinds of things and even um, talking about the whole point of us to go to Ghana and Senegal and to go to Brazil was to make that connection that especially the Portuguese and Spaniards and, and the rest of the colonizers were bringing slaves over from Africa over into Brazil and the Caribbean mm-hmm. and all sorts of areas in South America and North America. Yeah. And when I got to Brazil, you can see the syncretism of the cultures and within the people and how they look. And I never felt so more at home. Sometimes in America, I felt like we stick out like a sore thumb. But in Brazil, I felt like I was an everyday person. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I love samba. The people, the music, everything was just off the chain. So yeah. yeah, Brazil was like my... Number one, thanks, Beyonce. Thanks for you waking me again. <laughs> y'all go watch Blackest King, y'all. People have this like stereotype about Canada being really friendly mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. being like our polite neighbor, but I don't know how all true that is. Oh, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. I think it's just like I think it's like 
I mean, it, there were people who were friendly, of yeah. course. Um, I think it's just, I mean, there, there were a few times where I was called um, the CH word. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry. But, uh... That's but awful. it wasn't anything that I was, like, that surprised about. But I think all the baggage that the U.S. has, I think Canada has, too. Yeah. Um, I don't know why people haven't gotten there yet with Canada. Like, haven't under- understood that Canada is just, like, maybe Canada has better PR. I really think that's a, that's a huge part of it. And one of our perks, one of our freebies was this walking graffiti tour mm. of Berlin. And I think this tour technically goes for like either between an hour or two. Ours went for four. Oh, wow. Because our tour guide, she loved us so much. Oh. And so she's just like, I'm going to take you to my favorite bar. I'm going to take you to our favorite this, you oh, know, awesome. and then oh, let's go here <laughs> as well. And we were all very excited and happy. It wasn't until we, we stopped at the bar for that night. We were like, oh, it's night. <laughs> <laughs> and where are we? Yeah. We're nowhere near. So we can't just walk home. You got to catch a taxi. Over the... It was, I loved it. And I also was giving it the side eye. Like, somebody take me home now. Um <laughs> Well, I think people have to understand, like, Spanish people speak Spanish, but they are not, like, Latin American people. I think people need to understand that. I think people come to Spain, they're like, where's the flavor? I'm like, no, these are white people. (laughs) Exactly. That speak Spanish. That's it. And then being black is always interesting because they're just very confused. Depending on where you are in Spain, they're just like, what, where are you from? And when I say the United States, like, no, but where are you really from? Mm. And I'm like, well, you know, esclavitude. So I always say, like, you know, slavery. And they're like, oh, wait, we don't want to talk about that. And I'm like, all right. Because we're going to talk. I'll go speak to you in Spanish about it. Because they don't want to talk about it. So, And they're like, oh, like, oh, American? Oh, then the, like, the red carpet gets rolled out and you get to do all, you know. And I'm like, no, keep that same energy. Keep that same energy. Because, you know. Right? Because I'm this negra, right? That's what it is. So mm-hmm. keep it. Okay. And also the dialect. Osaka is like the best thing ever. I could be biased, but I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what about it do you love so much? Um, It's just, it reminds me of like African-American vernacular English. It's not really, I'm not sure the word. It's not the same as AAVE, mm-hmm. but it's definitely um, something that just adds a little flavor you know, to the language Mm. and and helps them stand out a bit more. It's like, oh, you're from Osaka because they talk with that dialect. (laughs) Like when I said it, they're like, whoa, you you, you speak Osaka then? And I'm like, you know, a little bit, a little bit, (laughs) you know. (laughs) But they love it. So I love it. Oh, that's great. That is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like when you talk with your friends compared to when you talk in class. You know, it's just that slight difference that makes it more friendly. Yeah, it's more unique and oh, it's yeah. cool. A lot of people probably think being a study abroad advisor is 
a lot sexier than it actually is. <laughs> like, it's, you, I mean, it's really, when it comes down to it, you're just, a, you work at a university, you know, yeah. it's pretty similar to just being an academic advisor. <laughs> so, I, um, I remember advising some students on a particular program that shall not be named that okay. was about $30,000 a semester. Ooh! <laughs> it was real awkward because oh. the students would come in all excited because it's, I mean, it's a really cool sounding flashy program. And then I would have to tell them what, how much it cost and you could just see the oh. life die in their eyes. Oh. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was rough. <laughs> Thirty thousand dollars! Oh my god! Yeah, that one wasn't like a notable outlier. They were not all that expensive. <laughs> you know, in Shanghai, they stare. They definitely do stare. Yeah. But they don't stare at you that much. You know, initially, us like in Beijing. In Beijing, they will stare you down. Mm-hmm. That did take some getting used to. Mm-hmm. I am a huge introvert. You know, I just want to kind of like stay in my own little comfy little bubble. And somebody staring at me burst my bubble because like yeah. it's like a it's like a hey I'm looking at you the person yeah you feel now exposed. you have to acknowledge that eighty percent of it didn't feel malicious at all right mm-hmm. right how I how I kind of thought of it was like seeing a black person in China particularly again outside of like more touristy parts of Shanghai mm-hmm. you know it's kind of like seeing seeing an elephant in the hood you know it's <laughs> like you've always heard of them. You know they exist somewhere, mm-hmm. but now here's one right outside of your favorite restaurant. You're probably going to stare, but also I'm not. I'm not a ethnic elephant. You know, I'm a human. Right. So people looking down on my Spanish a little bit. Oh, like, really? Um, yeah, for it not being, you know, Spanish, Spain Spanish, and um, and Latin American Spanish is or the different types of Latin American Spanish there are are very different in general. Mm. But I think even within Latin America, Dominicans are viewed as sort of like their Spanish is viewed as less quote unquote proper than, you know, a lot of other countries. So, and also I had experiences that weren't like with anyone being mean, but like with people just not understanding what I was saying because I was using a different word. Like I remember I went to go buy a basket and the way that I know how to say basket is canasta. That's how I've always said it. Yeah. And But apparently they call it, I think it's called a cesta. I think that's the like official name of it. And so I was like trying to ask for a basket and I kept saying canasta, canasta, canasta. And they did not understand what I was saying. Yeah. Um, so like little things like that also kind of came up. Like cesta, cesta is what it's called. Okay. I just looked it up. <laughs> this guy came and he said, my friend, my friend, come. He said, my friend, my friend, come on, get on, hop on, free to get on, take a picture for your family. So I hop on the back of his camera, I'd get up on the wall, try out to throw up the peace sign, and I'm smiling on the camera. They took a picture, I'm like, thanks, man. Uh, and then he goes, yeah! And we started, the camera started running a little bit, and I'm like, hold on, hold on, hold on, what is going on? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm ready to get down, and he's like, my friend. Free to get on, pay to get off. <laughs> and I'm like, I can't believe this dude just got me. <laughs> and uh, yeah, he got so I had you. to come up out of some change to, uh, to get off of that camel. <laughs> Otherwise, I would have been headed off into the desert. <laughs> uh, he said it was free to get off, but you had to pay to get off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'll never forget that moment. <laughs> yeah. I still try to make Senegalese food. I made 
their national dish, dish which is called chebujen, like probably three weeks ago. Mm. So good. It's called it's fish and rice. Okay. Chebu cheb is rice and jen is fish, and they also use scotch bonnets, which are pretty Ooh, spicy. Yeah. When I was there, I. <laughs> I didn't know that you were supposed to just like push down on it with a spoon to release the the like chili juice and flavors. Yeah, I thought you're supposed to literally eat the whole thing. So I did you eat the scotch bonnet? I, did. I ate the scotch oh, bonnet no. many times. <laughs> oh man! <laughs> yeah, until I finally saw someone just like press down on their spoon to eat it, and I was like, oh. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, a lot of the kids, when they found out I was from Detroit, they would ask me, oh, like 8 Mile Eminem? Oh, and <laughs> my goodness. <laughs> oh, very impressive. It's very, I'm very impressed that you, you know that movie. Um, <laughs> I don't know Eminem. I did not live on 8 Mile, no. Hmm. Um, and some of the kids, one of the one of the boys, he had on a Pistons jersey. And when I said I didn't, I didn't see him when I was giving my introduction. And I mentioned I was from Detroit. My introduction. So he comes up to me. He's like, "You're from Detroit?" And he points at his jersey. Oh, like, oh yeah, Pistons. that's adorable. It was. I know it was so cute. And this was a sixth grade classroom, so these were like the youngest kids in the building. So he just seemed so small, you know, and so cute. That was fun. A young woman named April Jackson borrowed a bootleg copy of Ninja Assassin from her cousin <laughs> one day. And she said, who is this fine man that I've never seen before? Rain. She said, oh, he only has one name? Let me let me research and find out more about this Rain. Oh, and then I find out this Rain is a iconic singer in South Korea who does hip-hop dances with no shirt on and I said oh my god who is this man so I even had like one aunt was like I can't believe she went over there to chase that Asian man and I said first of all yes have I seen him four times and did I go to his concert two weeks after being in Korea and I did, but he was just like an introduction to yeah. it, and it was like the best thing ever because it really changed my life. So, like that's how it started. That is how the legend has it. But I got to Rome, and I got a train ticket to Arezzo, um, and it's like a three-hour train ride or something like that. And they're crowded, and I'm moving through the train trying to find. Uh, a carriage that might have a seat and I finally find one and there was only one person in it so I sort of open the door and smile at her and she smiles at me and I sit down across from her mm-hmm. she goes back to her knitting and I <laughs> stare out the window or something and this woman was a black Muslim woman she had on a head wrap mm. um, and no one wanted to sit in the carriage with her except me that's why it was empty. Oh, my goodness. And nobody else came in for the entirety of my ride to Arezzo. Wow. It's not like I took any notice when I sat down. It was just like, oh, there's a free carriage. And hey, there's a black lady. This is perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was that. I started the recruiting process in December. And it wasn't until 
maybe about April that I had all the spots filled on the trip. Mm. Even though the prospect of visiting Spain was so interesting and intriguing to me, mm-hmm. that's not necessarily, you know, Americans, are, I don't know, we, we're not that interested in actually going to Spain. It's not a place that we mm-hmm. really think of. It's like, you know, oh, let me go there. So it really took like, um, you know, just painting the picture for folks. Yeah. Um, and then for Japan, when that time came around, I think the, the location itself is Japan. Right. You know, <laughs> it's exciting. Were, it, it, was, it was instant. Um, but I hope and believe, I would like to believe, that part of that, too, was because students saw that it was real. Mm-hmm. Um, that what we had achieved the year before, that it could be done and that I don't even just your swagger about it changes, right? At first, it's like, mm-hmm. well, what we're planning to do. And then it's like, no, so what we're doing is... Yeah, what we're going <laughs> you know? to do, for sure. <laughs> right, you know? But one of my most memorable experience, and I think that, if anything, this is why it was all worth it, was because I was able to put on my own produ- production, which I don't necessarily would have... I don't think that would have happened if I had stayed in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was actually for Color Girls. Um, oh, Yes. yes. <laughs> So at the time, um, I remember one of my professors introduced me to, for Color Girls, the play. So this was way before the movie. Mm-hmm. And at the time, I had never heard of For Color Girls. Um, so she introduced me to it. And I, it was very important for me to put on the show at that time. Um, kind of like how I felt. In many ways, I think I felt called to come to go to London. I felt this strong desire that would not leave um, until I was there. And so it was the same for for Color Girls. It was I had to do that. I grew up speaking English, you know, um, our my home country is a former um, English British colony. So Mm -hmm. English has been there my whole life. But then having to go to Scotland, I think it took me about two months to fully adjust and understand everything. I have this one story um, when I had gone online shopping for groceries and, um, you know, booked it and everything. And then the driver will call you and, and let you know that he's there. So it was, I think, my second week in, in Edinburgh. And then mm. the guy called and I didn't understand anything. And I was like, sorry, I didn't understand. And then he spoke again. And I'm like, oh, what? Sorry, <laughs> I didn't get it. And then he's just like, I'm outside. I'm like, okay, I'm coming. <laughs> But this was a different case because I actually um, learned later on that he had a Glaswegian accent, which is much thicker than the Edinburgh accent. So it does take a while to adjust to the Scottish accent, regardless of Edinburgh or Glasgow or even further north. Hamamats is very suburban. Not too... It's like the perfect middle ground between being a super tiny town and being a city. We have a big Costco now. (laughs) It's an equal distance between uh, Osaka and Tokyo. Mm, So it's the perfect middle ground, literally. And we're also extremely close to Nagoya. If you ever want to escape into a bigger city, it's easy to do that. Um, I will say it does have a small town feel at Tenzo, so everybody knows each other. Oh, okay. (laughs) So one of the nicknames... Well, my senpai gave to Hamamatsu was Dramamatsu. Dramamatsu? (laughs) Dramamatsu! (laughs) Because everybody's in everyone's business, that type of thing. Yes, basically. Like, (laughs) if someone's having an affair or something (laughs) happens out of school, everybody within Shizuoka will find out, but it'll probably originally happen in Hamamatsu. Like, (laughs) (laughs) we went to school. She had a driver. 
So the driver would take us to school. Um, we would do like the day, the day to day things. However, like I said, my household, they had a maid and they had a cook. Oh, that's right. Yes. So, you know, really when we would get back, we would watch TV, <laughs> um, in French. And I would sit there and watch the shows with them. And all of a sudden it was like a light came on and I knew <laughs> what everyone was saying. That's amazing. <laughs> and I knew, and then I started to dream in French. Now, the thing with the market was my um, exchange sister told me not to speak. She was like, don't talk. And I remember we went to this one market and the guy was trying to sell me something. And he was like, I know you're American by the way you walk. And that really, um, it didn't make me feel some kind of way, but it resonated. The way I was treated in the classroom, the the way that other faculty talked to me or the way that they encouraged me, honestly, or the expectations people had of me were a lot more balanced than what I've been used to in the U.S., where mm. it's this, this idea that, like, as a Black artist, your art has to be about trauma. It has mm-hmm. to be about the Black experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And the Black experience is trauma. Like, and this sort of really frustrating expectation that I've had placed on me since middle school, even. And, you know, here, like, for the first time, no one was, like, pushing me toward that path. And it felt really good. And I realized just how much of a handicap the U.S. had placed on me in terms of developing both my art practice and like myself as a person. Mm -hmm.